Hebrews chapter 6. We've been teaching on the principles of the doctrine of Christ, and we want to pick up with the next doctrine. So turn there, Hebrews 6. I guess maybe we should look at, back at chapter 5 briefly. I can't emphasize this enough. I feel like I say that a lot. I can't emphasize this enough. I can't emphasize this enough. I can't emphasize this enough. But let me emphasize it again. The Bible teaches us that once we're born again, we should be growing. Just like little babies who were born, they're cute and adorable, and you can't, you can't see them grow. Their growth is almost imperceptible, but yet at some point you look at your child and you say, they are growing so fast. Every parent has said it. I mean, it's just from the beginning of time, they just grow up so fast. But from day to day, you can't see a change. That, that ought to be us. That maybe from day to day we can't see a change, but at the same time people get around us and say, man, you're different. You're changing. Certainly those that go to church ought to be changing. There is certainly some kind of spiritual, we'll call it juju magumbo, working in your life if you can go to church and stay the same. How is it possible to go to church and stay the same person? How, how is it possible to go to church and be a worse person when everybody else is improving? So one of the, the exhortations of Hebrews 5 says, verse 12, for when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as uh, have need of milk and not of strong meat. The author of Hebrews is telling the saints, the time has come you ought to all be teachers, in a sense holding your own Bible studies. He said, but instead, the whole church has become as one that has need of milk. So they hadn't just held their ground, they'd actually receded. They digressed, which means this goes on. The will of God is not for you to stay the same, and certainly the will of God is not for you to regress. The Bible tells us we go from glory to glory. We go from faith to faith. We increase from grace to grace. We ought not be the same believer one month to the next. We ought to be getting victory. And when you're first born again, that growth ought to be exponential. I mean, it's just, it's just skyrocketing because you're coming out of darkness into light. You're coming out of carnality into spirituality. And it, it ought to be a, an exponential skyrocketing of growth. And I get it. You do get to a place in Christ where your growth does kind of taper off, but it doesn't ever cease. It doesn't flatline. You know, you're not seeing change as rapidly as you did the first year or two you were born again but you are still increasing with the increases of God. If you're not increasing, you're not with God. And by increase, we don't just mean stuff. By increase, we mean knowledge of God's word, love for his church, love for the word, love for him, uh, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, knowledge of the scriptures, willingness to share your faith, victory over offenses and addictions and habits, victory, victory, victory. Our life is defined by victory because we get better. But if you go and you don't get better, what are you doing? And we understand in this world there's only two directions, forward or backward, heaven or hell. There's no middle ground. Now, I told you one of the recent Barna polls said that 60 or 70% of confessing Christians believe now Jesus isn't the only way. That shows you that the overall direction of our nation is backwards. And so we use a little bit of a physics analogy. If the river is pushing you towards hell at five miles an hour, you need to be going at least 5.1 miles an hour to not go to hell off the precipice. 
it would probably be preferable you go six, seven, eight, nine miles an hour so that you don't just hold your ground, but you get further and further away. But as we get closer and closer to the end of time, we know following geology and river morphology, the river's going to pick up speed. And today's speed at which people go to hell is a lot faster than it was 30 years ago. And I think we all can perceive that a year from now, it's going to be a quicker pace to hell. That means you and I have to pick up our pace to get away from it. We march on. We press on. We do not draw back. We don't draw back. We're not looking for an easier church. We're not looking for an easier option. You and I as Christians, we always pick the difficult road. We always pick the, the one that requires more sacrifice. Our nation as a culture always goes the easier option. And so when you do that, you're constantly distilling your life down to mediocrity, ease, and hell. We take the harder option. We forgive. We tithe. We sacrifice. We fast. We put our flesh under. We go to church. We're always taking the more difficult of the options. We're not like the seeker-friendly church. We're not like the lukewarm church. We keep advancing from glory to glory. We don't want to be found in Hebrews where it says, when you ought to be teachers, you've regressed and need milk again. That should not be us. Verse six, chapter 6, verse 1 says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. That's the end of the series. The principles of the doctrine of Christ. There are six principles. And I just often ask the question, how many of these can you deny before you're no longer a Christian? We've already covered that a lot of these principles people don't even teach anymore. You need to understand just because there's a cross on the building doesn't mean God goes there. Just because there's a communion table, like we're going to have communion this morning, just because there's a communion table doesn't mean Christ is honored there. I used to go to church with a lady. She was kind of a f older. I was in my mid to late 20s. She was in her mid to late 50s, so she's kind of like a mama to me. Lawyer, very good lawyer in the town I used to live in. But she backslid and got into a Unitarian church. Now, Unitarian church is basically, before there were rainbow churches, Unitarian church was a rainbow church. All paths diverge and converge there and all way. They were studying out everybody's holy book. But she told me one story. She used to play the piano. And so she, it was a Unitarian church, but they still had churchy elements. So they had an, an organist and they would have worship and they'd have communion. So explain to me how Unitarians who believe all paths lead to heaven and God's not sending anybody to hell. And the Bible's a book of metaphysical ideologies, and it's not the Word of God. How in the world do you have communion? But she said, I said, what did you guys serve? No joke. I don't make this stuff up. She said, Skittles. <laughs> Seriously, Skittles. She said, yes. I said, what song? She said, I played the song on the on the electric piano. I said, well, what song do you play to a Skittle communion? She said, you remember Kermit the Frog's Rainbow Connection? Now, I went to church with her 20 years ago. That's where the Unitarians were in the South, in the Bible Belt, 20 years ago. I think they had drawn back. Thank God she repented, saw the light, came into a good gospel church and rededicated her life to Christ and quit blaspheming the Holy Ghost by serving Skittles, playing Kermit the Frog's Rainbow Connection, calling it the Lord's Table. Holy smokes. What? And yet that's the ideology of a lot of churches now. According to Barna, 60 to 70% of evangelicals in America now say Jesus is not the only way. I'll tell you a cool story, cool Revelation. I was last 
Monday, Tuesday, I was in Pittsburgh at that Jewish synagogue looking at their flowers and the trees in their biblical garden. So I got a tour of their sanctuary. I had to tell the lady, I said, ma'am, forgive me, I'm an evangelical pastor. I know your Old Testament, but I don't know your culture. I wanted to say, I probably know your Old Testament better than you do, but I was trying to win court favor. I said, I said okay, so you're a reform synagogue, yes. A reform Jewish. I said, okay, what's, please teach me. She said, there's Orthodox. They call their place of worship a synagogue. We're reform Jewish. We call it a temple. I said, what's the difference? She said, well, the Orthodox are in the old ways. We call ourselves reform because we're always evolving. We're never done. It's not past tense. Like the Reformation, she said, it's not past tense. We're always evolving. And this was a pro-LGBT synagogue, temple, Jewish facility. So I, she took me into their temple. They call it a sanctuary. I was having her explain these things. Beautiful building. It's on the historical registry. It was made by a famous architect who was the equivalent of a Frank Lloyd Wright. And um, so she was just teaching me everything. And uh, I said, what do you guys call the altar? Oh, she said, that's not the altar. We, that's called the bima. And I said, the bima? I said, do you know what that means? She says, no. I said, it's Greek. It means this judgment seat. And I said, do you understand what that means? She said, I don't. I said, your tradition acknowledges when your rabbi stands up here, he sits in the seat of judgment to judge you all and help you. That's pretty cool that they call their altar the bima. We're going to be judged at the bima seat of Christ. It's the bench, the seat of judgment. In the Olympics, it's where the awards were given out when you judged an Olympian for good or bad. And they, the Jews call, I told her, I said, actually, it's where Pontius Pilate sat when he condemned Christ to the cross. He sat on the bema seat. But they call their altar where the rabbis teaches from the word of God the bema, I think is a really cool thing. So back to this now. You're supposed to be getting better. How can you not be getting better? except that the river of life is pushing us towards hell faster and faster and faster. It's picking up speed. We can all perceive it. If you're old enough, I'm 45. If you're older than me, you can really feel it. Our children can't feel it. They don't know any different yet. But you and I who are older, we feel the world is not the same as it was two years ago. It's definitely not the same as it was 10 years ago. It's been picking up speed towards the end of time. And we got to make sure as Christians we're advancing with Christ. We were born for such a time as this. We're anointed. We can run the race. We can finish our course. God will grace us. A little bit of persecution and opposition will be good for you. You won't know you're made out of what you're made out of until you're squeezed. And if I am the biggest force that offends you in your life, you got to grow up. If you can't handle me and I live for you and I pray for you and my phone is open to you and my house is open to you and I always submit to your appointments when you make one with me and you can't handle me, you're not going to make it out there when they start mocking you on your job and in your classroom and in your professor's hall. Then you're not going to make it. We got to really buckle down, church, and be born again children of the Most High God, reflecting the light of Jesus Christ. And I keep telling you, you're going to lose family. You're going to lose family and just get used to it and be ready for it because they're going to hoist their sails into these demonic winds and sail away. And you're going to keep yours blowing with Christ. So how can two walk together except they be in agreement? And you don't have permission to deny Christ to hang out with mama. One of our church members, just to pick on woke, 
Uh, understand, woke isn't just about black injustice. Woke is now about LGBTism. So when you say you're woke, I think you're pro-gay and pro-trans. I am for those people being born again. All right, but I do not march with them because their sin mocks God. So we have a, a family in this church, uh, an individual, they have family up in Monterey, old timers up in Monterey, and they were telling me their grandparents who live in Monterey who are Christians have gone woke. Now, this is cookful. I mean, this is like New York City for most of the folks in the Upper Cumberland. Right? I mean, this is, this is highfalutin. I mean, all the rows head to Cookville. I mean, when I grow up, I'm going to Cookville. Like, that's the mindset of our region. You know it. You live here. And then we have a technological university that raises up PhDs from around the world. But Cookville, I mean, if they don't have it at the Cookville Walmart, they'll have it at the Allgood Walmart. We're so highfalutin, we have three Starbucks now. So that's our mindset. Explain to me how a bunch of old white Baptists living in Monterey are pro-trans. How does that happen? Monterey. You know, Monterey. 8,000 people up there, and 1,000 of them are from Guatemala. How does a bunch of old white Baptists end up trans in Cookville, Upper Cumberland? This is the day we're living in and want to fight over it. You and I have to stay closer to Jesus Christ than ever before. We do not deny these words. It doesn't matter what the new science is. Uh, somebody was, did, made, made the joke, you know, well, now we, we have truth, and then we have my truth, and I think we have science and my science. Nothing's empirical anymore. Nothing is, <laughs> yeah, absolute. So chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation. So we know from that word there that these six principles are foundational to Christianity. They're principles, which means they're a set series of teachings. They're not just one little point and you're done. We honestly, if I'm a teacher, I could easily spend seven, eight weeks, maybe even half a year, on each one of these foundational points. And still not exhausted, we would just get maybe bored of it and have to move on to the next thing. So the first foundation stone is repentance from dead works. That's both sin and legalistic dead actions. You can spend a long time teaching Christians how to get over dead works in their life and teaching folks how to get sin out of life. That's repentance from dead works. That's a foundation stone to Christianity. Number two, faith toward God. I'm pretty sure when the author of Hebrews says faith toward God, they didn't have Muhammad in mind because did you know Muhammad didn't exist then? Muhammad comes along 600 years later. So for Joel to say, I'm not sure, Larry, if Jesus is the only way, is to deny Christ. I'm pretty sure when the author of Hebrews said faith toward God, he wasn't thinking about Vishnu or Brahma or any of the Hindu pantheons of gods. Pretty sure he wasn't thinking about Confucius or Buddha. Buddha wasn't born yet. I'm pretty sure he didn't know anybody but God Almighty. Faith toward God, because whatever you aim toward, that's where you drive. That's where you head. Not faith toward yourself, not faith toward mama's religion, faith toward your God. 
Third one is doctrine of baptisms. Notice it's plural. We talked about the five baptisms of the New Testament. We blew, blew through those pretty quickly. You have John's baptism, which doesn't apply to us. Believer's baptism of water, baptism into the body of Christ called the new birth. Baptism of the Holy Ghost in fire, which is the evidence of speaking in tongues. And the baptism of affliction. So you can blow through those real quick, but you can teach on each one for about a week or two. Honestly, the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues, we wrote a curriculum that's nine lessons long on that. You could spend a long time there and still never exhaust it. But that's a foundation stone. Most Christians can tell you about one baptism, which is the water baptism, which we all are for. We even we just got our stained glass window in. We, we had that made just to honor the baptismal over there to make it more reverential, more holy, more sacred. So we're all for water baptism, but there are three others that apply to the believer. And which, what does this one matter? If you're not born again, what does this one matter if you never get spirit-filled? What does this one matter if you're not willing to serve God? The only thing that makes water baptism of any power is your heart of consecration. Because if you didn't know, that baptismal is not special. It's made out of the same fiberglass you make bathtubs out of. And it's not like we have this secret aqueduct conduit that runs under the Atlantic and comes out in the Dead Sea or Jordan and we're sucking holy water out of Israel. Because even Naaman said, this is a nasty river. I don't want to be baptized in this. No, this is the same water in our water fountain. It's the same water that flushes our urinals. It's the same water that comes out of the tap. So there's no power in the water. But it's the act of faith in obedience to Jesus Christ that makes it what it needs to be. That brings us to the laying on of hands. We made the argument, I was raised denominationally. I never saw laying on of hands once in my entire upbringing. Not that I can recall. Because I remember getting around charismatic churches at the age of 18 and 19 and people laying hands on folks. And I thought, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I found it interesting. I was uncomfortable with seeing Christians lay hands on Christians because to me it looked like some kind of cult movie I'd watched in the 80s. Some kind of weird seance, some kind of everybody in robes and chanting. And somehow our culture had trained me, a Baptist, to think that laying on of hands was satanic. Maybe you were raised the same weird way too. Amazing how culture and movies have a way of putting more doctrine in you than the pastor can. Remember, faith toward God, not faith toward movies. <laughs> I, I told a friend one time, because I've been spirit-filled now since March of 96, so that's 25 years. I told a friend one time about speaking in tongues. I said, what do you know about speaking in tongues? He said, I heard about that once. Heard it was of the devil. I said, you know nothing about the New Testament but one thing you do know is tongues, and it's of the devil. Man, Hollywood is good. You're a pagan. You know nothing about God, the Bible, the New Testament, Jesus, except for maybe Christmas, maybe Easter, but that's the bunny thing. But you have heard about tongues, but the one thing you had heard, it was of the devil. But you have the doctrine of the laying on of hands. We covered that last week. One of the reasons we lay hands on people is for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We lay hands on people to ordain them to ministry. We lay hands on them to bless them. We lay hands on folks for healing. We lay hands on folks to, to put the power of God for impartation on them. There are a lot of reasons to lay hands on people. It's a foundational doctrine. How many of these can we reject? How many foundation stones can we pull out from underneath the house before the house implodes and becomes nothing but a dead religious going through the motions kind of scenario. Brings us to our topic this morning, resurrection of the dead. Now, we, we like this in title. It sounds kind of cool, but when you stop to think about it, this really makes us look weird. 
Because we're just dumb enough to believe we're never going to die. We're just dumb enough to believe that when this body does die, we get a new one. Now, this sets us apart from all the other religions that they believe your soul might live forever. But none of the religions believe in a body that lives forever. And this is one of the things that makes Christianity way different. Because all the other religions hate the flesh. They hate the natural. They hate the carnal. Gnosticism, which is a, a heresy that's been around since Babylon, Gnosticism wants to destroy anything that's natural, anything that's tangible. But we can't do that because God made this. The earth is God's will. The earth is the Lord's flavor. The, even after this is all done, we get a new heaven and a new... Where do you think we're going to live? See, we've, been, we've somehow thought that we were going to live in heaven forever, but the Bible doesn't teach that. Well, I don't know. We might come and go. We go to heaven for a season, but then we, we come in the millennial reign of Christ, and then a new heaven, a new earth. We're we going to live in heaven while earth is what? Holiday? But the Lord establishes nations and borders. and Do you know God has boundaries and borders? He has gates. He believes in nationalities, tribes and tongues and kings. This is all God's doing. We pervert it, but it's all God's idea. So the resurrection of the dead, before we look at a bunch of scriptures here, it tells us that even once we die, and it's what the Bible calls sleep, but we don't believe in spirit sleep. That's a weird doctrine. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we're not just going to fall asleep and just wake up in heaven uh, a thousand years from now. We're going to be instantly with the Lord. Our bodies are what sleep in the dust of the earth. That at the resurrection of the dead, we get a new body, just like the Lord Jesus Christ did. That's weird. And you can acknowledge it. It's weird. If somebody says, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Yes. What does that mean? Here's what it means. You're going to get a new body, and you're going to live forever in it. And it's going to be tangible. It's not going to be a vapor walking through walls, though you might be able to. I don't know. Jesus did with his glorified body. But we get a new body. Some of you are already excited because you're hoping for upgrade. You're like, yeah. You're like, yeah. Can I build it like on my Memoji thing? Like, do I get to pick a turban? Do I, you know? <laughs> Gadiel gets to keep his little curly Q mustache if he wants to. <laughs> we get a glorified body. That's the resurrection of the dead. But there's a resurrection of the wicked dead too. They don't get a, a body like we get. They get a body they go to hell in for eternity. But I want you to understand something. This is a core doctrine. We believe we get a new body. And that makes us a little weird. But what else are we going to believe? That's what the Bible teaches. We believe in the resurrection of the dead because Jesus Christ did. And anything Jesus Christ taught and affirmed, if we don't believe our Savior, he's not our Savior. We believe the Bible because Jesus Christ believed the Bible. We affirm the Old Testament because Jesus Christ affirmed the Old Testament. And if you have trouble with Jesus, why are you believing him for salvation? You don't just get to pick and choose what he taught. So let's look at a couple of scriptures because I want you to know that the resurrection of the dead is not a New Testament doctrine. It is thoroughly established in the Old Testament. And then it picks up even more momentum in between the time of Nehemiah and the time of Christ. Coming out of Babylon, the resurrection of the dead even evolves more as a Jewish doctrine that then Jesus Christ comes along and builds upon in his earthly ministry. So let's look at a couple scriptures as we teach on uh, the resurrection of the dead. Let's go to Job. 
Can anything good come out of the book of Job? As a matter of fact, yes. A couple things here. Job chapter 14. Job is the oldest book of the Bible, written before the Pentateuch was written, but Job does not take place before, let's say, Abraham, etc. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it's called the Torah, was written by Moses, but Job was written before Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So we know historically Job is the oldest book of the Bible. The only term used for God is the Almighty, the El Shaddai. He doesn't know God as Jehovah anything, not Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Rafi, Jehovah Tzidkenu. Uh, he doesn't know the Lord as any of that. He just knows him as the Almighty. One of the themes and arcs we see through the Bible is that God progressively reveals himself through his different names. And as mankind advances in doctrine, he reveals himself as another name and another aspect and another perspective until he ultimately reveals himself as Jesus Christ, the Son of God who fulfills all those Old Testament names. So when you read the book of Job, it will only say the Almighty or God, which is El Shaddai, the Almighty One. There's no Jehovah's in there because he hasn't begun to reveal himself that way to mankind. So Job has got old doctrine, but being the oldest book in the Bible, it's interesting because twice it talks about the resurrection of the dead. So all the way back there, little Job, who had no book of Genesis, he had no Levitical law, God was already talking to him about a resurrection of the dead. Job chapter 14, verse 12 so man lieth down and rises not. I believe we call that death. Till the heavens be no more, they shall not awake, nor be raised out of their sleep. Or that thou wouldest hide me in the grave, that thou wouldest keep me secret until thy wrath be passed, that thou wouldest appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change comes. There's your first reference in the Bible to the resurrection of the dead. Verse 14 is what really heavily hits it. I'm in the King James, so other translations bring it out a little better. If a man die, shall he live again? We know the answer is yes. All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. What's the change? The resurrection of your body. We see that reference there of sleeping in the earth. So this is our first reference to the resurrection of the dead. Let's move on quickly because we have a few verses we want to get to, and then I want to really bless you with some Jewish teaching that I actually had a long phone call with a Jewish expert, a, a Ph.D. in Hebraic studies, a pastor, missionary, and uh, he taught me some stuff that as he was just feeding me with the water hose, I was like, That's, you're making that up. So I went back and searched it. He wasn't making it up. So I'm going to share it with you because I think your mind's going to go, Whoa. Job 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives. That was a good worship song when they were a dry church. And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. So we're jumping all the way to eschatology when the Lord returns. Sounds like the rapture, the second coming. He shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Now, how in the world do worms eat your body, but in your flesh you still stand and see God? It's pretty cool. 
I mean, this is the resurrection of the dead in the book of Job. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. That is my emotions. Think about that. Even after my skin has been destroyed by worms, yet in my flesh I will see God. I will see him with my own eyes. How do you have your own eyes if they've been eaten by worms? Resurrection of the dead. He's talking about, I'm going to get a new body. Somehow Job saw it. Job had to walk with God. Job feared God. There's no telling what God revealed to Job one-on-one, even though all he revealed to him is, you can just call me the Almighty. Okay, El Shaddai, what would you like to talk about? We'll talk about what's going to happen in 5,000 years. Can I know any other name? You don't need to know any other name, but I want to show you what's going to happen at the end of time. Just because you only know one name of God doesn't mean you don't know anything else about him. I mean, think about all the doctrine here, and all they know him is the Almighty. Let's go to Psalm 17. We're building the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I am awake with your likeness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. The awake from the dead. That's the implication in the Hebrew. When I awake from the dead, I will be satisfied with your likeness. Paul said, we know that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we'll see him face to face. Here's another verse about the resurrection of the dead, a psalm. Isaiah 26, just keep moving here, because we want to make sure we have plenty of time to hit what we need to hit. Isaiah 26. Verse 19. Isaiah 26, 19. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Talking about a resurrection. Awake and sing, you that dwell in the dust. That's where we bury bodies, is in the dust. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast off the dead. Here is a prophetic foresight of the resurrection. Awake, arise. That's the dead in Christ shall rise first. These are all these, uh, these are Hebrew verses, Old Testament verses that build the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Maybe sometimes we think the resurrection of the dead is totally a New Testament thing, but it's not. The New Testament builds on the foundation of the Old Testament. It advances the Old Testament in a new and living way, but all the doctrines, all the principles are, 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 are pointing towards the New Testament, and the Old, New Testament is a reflection of the Old Testament. So we can't really move forward without understanding the Old Testament. In fact, when Paul told his disciples, know the word of God, the, the scriptures have made thee wise unto salvation, they weren't reading Romans when he said that. They weren't reading the Revelation when he said that. They weren't reading the book of Acts. They were living the book of Acts. So everything the New Testament church studied was the Old Testament. But they were understanding certain things were passing away and certain things were becoming new. Uh, Daniel chapter 12. This is probably one of the strongest verses. And if you've noticed, we've gone from the oldest book of the Old Testament. We're advancing closer and closer to the time of Christ. Daniel chapter 12. And then I want to show you what Jewish tradition began to evolve in between the Babylonian captivity and the coming of Christ. Daniel 12, verse 1. 
This is Daniel in Babylonian captivity prophesying about the end of the age. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. That's Michael the archangel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was seen there was an, uh, since there was a nation even to the, uh, that same time. And at the same time, thy people shall be delivered. Everyone shall be, uh, that shall be found written in the book. See, even the book of life is an Old Testament concept. Moses talked about blotting people out. He said, blot me out. David talked about blotting people out. So the book of life is a concept rooted in the Old Testament. The New Testament comes along. John sees it a lot closer through the, the hall of time. And he says, it's not just the book of life. It's the Lamb's book of life. Maybe he got close enough to read the title on the book. Everybody else could just see that it was a book of life, but on the cover it said there, I'm making this up of course, and maybe he just saw that it was written, the Lamb's book of life. Verse 2, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Here is one of the final verses on the resurrection, but yet we're dealing with eschatology in the last times. If you didn't know that we are approaching these last days, you can look around you and see that the world is crazy. Let me stop and take an eschatological moment. Every generation since the ascension of Christ in Acts 2 or Acts 1 thought Jesus was coming back in their dispensation, and yet they've never seen it. And we believe he's coming back in our life and we may or may not see it, but we would like to point out all the technology that's making it possible for the Antichrist to control people. Hosea 13, 14. I know you got to find Hosea. It's kind of hidden in there. You there, Hosea 13, 14? I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Repentance shall be hid from my eyes. That means he's not going to stop. But I want you to see, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. That's the resurrection. Of course, we know that. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right? About verse 51. That's a very good funeral verse to read. I read that a lot at funerals. O death, where is thy sting? I will be your plagues. But all this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead was established thoroughly in the Old Testament. And you come to Malachi, and the Old Testament stops being written, and you're fulfilling the time from Ezra and Nehemiah about 400 years through the times of the Maccabees until the arrival of Christ. So what happens is that in that time, as the Pharisaical and the Sadducees arise as a sect, and they begin to establish their doctrine, and they're trying to rejuvenate Israel as a nation and as a people fearing God and they establish a synagogue system is a lot of their doctrines continue to evolve. One of their doctrines is the resurrection of the dead and it's based on these passages. Now if you remember when Jesus Christ is in the earth in his earthly ministries the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, they're very much in line with Jesus Christ on that doctrine, whereas the Sadducees rejected it. They rejected the resurrection. They believed in neither spirit nor angels nor demons. They didn't believe in any of that. The Sadducees were a political force who basically held power because they controlled the temple. They controlled the temple, and they made up about half of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the, the Congress, if you will, but it was also more of like a judiciary committee. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees had to work together with the Sanhedrin, which was a group of about 70 men who would make decisions and pass laws in the land. But the Sadducees only had any power because for whatever reason, they inherited the care of the temple and the temple system. 
So from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of Zerubbabel's temple and the revival that Ezra brought and the Levitical priesthood restitution, uh, you have the evolution of the resurrection of the dead as a doctrine, and it gets tied and closely associated to the Feast of Trumpets. Now let me get a little Jewish on you. We're not going to go Messianic Jewish, and we're not going Jewish roots, so please don't wig out on me. Though my discussion I had with this doctor on Friday, who his PhD is in Hebraic studies post-exile to 120 AD. He's a Word of Faith guy. He's a 27-year veteran missionary. Um, he said his perspective, and it was very convincing, the Jews called these seven feasts, feasts or festivals, holy convocations. He said, but the Hebrew word also means day of remembrance. And he said, so he said, in my church, we celebrate these festivals. Three of them have come to pass, four of them have not. He said, because we celebrate Passover, and I know Christ is our Passover, he says, but it's a remembrance. We remember it. Christ fulfilled it. And he said, the argument I always use is, why do we celebrate your birthday? You've already been born. Why do we celebrate your anniversary? You've already been married. Why do we celebrate Christmas? He's already been born. Why do we celebrate Easter? He's already been resurrected. He said, so I, he's, I know, he told me, I know your argument, because he was raised Southern Baptist too. We're both Southern ba former recovering Southern Baptist, Word of Faith guys now. <laughs> My Baptist friends tell me that. You're a recovering Baptist. I said, I am. He said, I am, and I still pastor one. He said, um, I, I know your mindset is going to be that uh, you don't want to do it. He said, but we do it because it's part of Christ's fulfillment and the others we hold because they haven't even come to pass yet. So he's not Jewish, and he's not wearing yarmulkes and prayer shawls and, you know, whatever, but he still honors these festivals. But the Feast of Trumpets is the one the Jews associate with the resurrection of the dead. So let me tell you, that's called, uh, you probably know Rosh Hashanah, which literally means the first of the year. And it takes place, actually it was last week, to be honest with you. Maybe you've heard the term Rosh Hashanah. That is the Feast of Trumpets. That word literally means the head of the year or the first of the year. It's the beginning of the Jewish New Year. This is when that festival began. And oddly enough, in the scriptures, it's the least discussed of the seven feasts. It's the least covered. It's mentioned in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 8, when Ezra stands up on his platform and begins to preach and he says, remember, eat the sweet, drink the fat, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That is uh, the first day of the seventh month, Tishri. That is the Feast of Ta uh, Trumpets that they're celebrating. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's the Feast of Trumpets. When we get that Nehemiah 8.8 verse, that's the Feast of Trumpets. But like we do in our religious holidays, we have multiple names for everything. The Jews had multiple names for their holidays too. So there's several names they assign to the Feast of Trumpets. And this is where your mind will begin to be blown because this is what developed between Malachi and Christ's return, his first advent. So the other term is Yom Teruah. Yom, like you've heard Yom Kippur, which means Day of Atonement. Yom Teruah. This means the Day of the Awakening Blast. Now that starts to give you chills because we've been talking about the resurrection of the dead. Jews believe that the resurrection of the dead will occur on the Feast of Trumpets. They believe that that trumpet will blast and Paul said the dead in Christ will rise first. 
So Paul bases his doctrine on this. The problem is, that's our doctrine. Yom Teruah, the day of the awakening blast. It is also called the festival of the day of the last trumpet. On the Feast of Trumpets, there are 100 trumpet blasts, and the 100th blast is a final long blast called the last trumpet. That should also remind us of something Paul said, that last trump, the dead in Christ shall wake. This is, this is not Jews taking Pauline doctrine. This is Pauline doctrine based on Jewish teaching coming out of the time of the Maccabees. It's also called Yom Zikaron. Yom, Y-O-M. It's kind of fun to say. Yom, Yom. Zikaron. Spell it however it makes you feel good. This means the day of remembrance. This is the day when God's elected people remember him and God remembers them. We would say he never leaves us nor forsakes us. On this day of the trumpet blast, with the long, long blast, God's elect remember him, and he remembers them. But we also, from Hebrews, it tells us that he's going to return for those that look for him. What about all the Christians that don't look for Christ right now? We, we can demonstrate we look for Christ by how we live. Do we live for him, or are we distracted? Do we have a, a hollow confession, or are we serious? Because we, by the way we live, we demonstrate our faith. Christianity is not a Sunday school pen. It's not a bumper sticker. Christianity is not some kind of Facebook thing you check and you just discuss your, whatever your religion is. Christianity is who we are. We're children of the Most High God. Therefore, it's who we are everywhere we go. It's also called Yom Hadin. Yom Hadim. This is what the Jews taught. Yom Hadin, H-A-D-I-N. This is called the Day of Judgment. All of these are the same holiday to the Jews, the same festival. Just like we have at Christmas, season's greetings, uh, the most wonderful time of the year, the hot winter holidays. Uh, we call uh, you know, Easter is Easter, Resurre Resurrection Sunday, it's Passover, it's Paschal. It's, we have all these different terms. This is what the Jews talk about, the Feast of Trumpets. The day of judgment, this is the day the Jews say God opens the books and judges the righteous and the wicked out of them. We're seeing where our New Testament doctrine comes from. And again, when this doctor, Dr. Scott, was sharing this with me on Friday, I honestly, in my heart, he's just going through it so fast, I thought, you're making up some of this. You just really are. There's just no way it lines up this much. There's just no way. So all you have to do is Google search it, and you pull up all sorts of encyclopedias and blogs and sermons, and you're not making it up. This is, this is Jewish culture. They also call it Yom Hamalek. Hamalek is H-A-M-E-L-E-Flem. A Jewish lady at that synagogue, she was teaching me how to pronounce something. She said, we don't have an H sound in Hebrew. And I wanted to say, you have a phlegm sound. I, I didn't say it. She said, it's ha. <laughs> she wanted me to say ha with her. So, hamalek, <laughs> So, yam hamalek means, this is what's really cool. The day of the coronation of the king. 
the day of the coronation of the king. And this actually goes back even further in Israeli history. It doesn't, didn't matter when the king became king, say dad dies and the son becomes king, he was not officially coronated until this festival when all the trumpets could be blown and he could be placed on the throne and crowned. All of these festivals, or excuse me, all these names reflect how the Jews view this feast. What is the resurrection of the dead? Now, if the Jews are right, and it's what we're basing New Testament, I'm not done yet, but if they're right, this may even start to tweak our eschatology for what it's worth. Because if, if the Jews are right, and I'm not saying yes or no, but so far, you guys are Bible students. Your heart's already thinking of scriptures as I read these different names. This means that maybe the resurrection of the dead isn't to the end of the tribulation when Christ comes back. And yet, one of the other titles for this is the day of Jacob's trouble, which we also know is the seven years of tribulation. So how does that all sort out? I don't have answers for this. I'm just giving you stuff fresh off a phone call from Friday, because as he was talking to me, Dr. Scott, I thought, I'm teaching on this Sunday. This is going to work its way into the sermon. Israel's kings were officially coronated on this day, no matter when their predecessor died. Yom Hamalak, the day of the coronation of the king. Now here's the one that'll give you chills. They also call it Yom Hakaseh. Yom Hakaseh. Spell it however you feel like it. There's no test later. Yom Hakaseh. This means the day that is hidden. The day that is hidden. And this is because it's the only festival of the seven that begins on a new moon. And you don't ever know when the new moon's going to fall. So the festival was a two-day festival to make sure you didn't miss it. On this festival, the Jews would say, it is the day and the hour that no one knows. <laughs> of the day and the hour of the Feast of Trumpets, no one knows. But they knew a window. But of the day and the hour, today, tomorrow, which day, we don't know, because it's whenever the new moon began to shine light again. On this festival, because it's the day that the Lord opened the books, the greeting of the Jews would also be, instead of uh, on top of shalom, is may your name be found in the book of life. That's how they would greet each other during this festival. May your name be found in the book of life. That's the resurrection of the dead. You see exactly where our doctrine comes from. Based on Paul, based on Peter, based on John the Revelator, because they're writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and this is the culture they've inherited through the time of the Maccabees, through the time of Jesus Christ, and into their own apostleship. We know that Jesus preached the resurrection of the dead. He said, I am the resurrection. Let's burn through a couple verses real quick. I've got several more, and hopefully you're learning something. Those are worth going back and looking at because they will cause your heart to tremble and realize that we have not followed cunningly devised fables, that our, our heritage, our faith, our doctrine is of antiquity, and it's proven. Luke 14, 14. Jesus said, Thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. 
Jesus Christ believed in the resurrection. He corrected nothing that Hebrews taught on the resurrection. Just write these scriptures down. I'll read them to you. Luke 14, 14. John 5. Like I told you, this is one of these doctrines we could teach on for several, several weeks. John 5, 21. For as the Father raised up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Verse 28. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. There's a resurrection of life and there's a resurrection of damnation. And here's where we make this distinction. Everybody's getting resurrected. Everybody lives forever. Everybody does so in a glorified body. But one to eternal damnation, one to eternal life. You're all going to live forever. And you get to pick where. Every day you make that choice. Do you have the faith to make the right decision day after day when we don't know because no one knows the day or the hour when that last trumpet blows? John eleven twenty four. just write these verses down. You can go back and look at them later. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believeth thou this? Yes, Lord, I believe this. Paul taught the resurrection of the dead. Acts 23, 6. But Paul, when, when Paul perceived that one, of the Sadduc- that one part was Sadducees, the other Pharisees, he cried out, in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and the resurrection, of the hope and the resurrection of the dead. I am called in question. Paul preached it. He lived it. He believed it. Uh, Acts 24, 14, Paul said, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that they sh- there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Paul said, I worship after the way, that is the way of Jesus Christ, which they call heresy because it was a Jewish sect at this point. But he said, I have a hope toward God, The same thing they permit. What's the hope toward God? A resurrection of the dead for the just and the unjust. That's what we believe. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to give you a couple more verses. There's a lot more we could go to, but we won't. Philippians 3. This is one Mr. Mark Neuroff covered. Come on, Philippians. Paul said in Philippians 3.10 that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That means it's something we have to attain to. But if you don't know the power of his resurrection today, what will you attain to? We have Christians today desperate to live, not willing to crucify. And you cannot serve Jesus Christ fighting for your rights, marching for your rights, wanting your rights when you're called to take up your cross and die daily. There is no social justice in an Afghani prison, but there's the gospel being preached. There's no LGBT rights, no woke social justice movement in a communist Chinese prison, but there's the gospel being preached. So you tell me which one's really God. It disgusts me 
that churches in our nation have rejected the gospel of Christ to embrace social justice, thinking it's the heart of God. Okay, should you ever go and do a mission trip, because most of these woke social justice hacks will never set foot on the mission field to fulfill the call of Christ. Should you ever end up there, will you preach social justice or the gospel of Christ? Because God doesn't finance social justice. That's a demonic movement, exploiting true injustices to strip and rape the church of power and focus. And yet it's so effective. Philippians 3.11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians, actually let's just skip that. Titus, right, 1 Corinthians 15.51, we've already quoted it. Titus chapter 2, and then we'll go one more verse after that. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope. What's that blessed hope? That's the resurrection. That's what Paul called it. That blessed hope is a reference to the resurrection and the glorious appearing of, God, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we look for, the resurrection of the dead, that great hope. We look for that great hope. We look for that great hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, last verse. 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. That is to be dead, your body buried. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we, the, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. These are words of comfort because we serve Jesus Christ. These are words of terror and horror if you don't know Jesus Christ. Because when that trumpet blows, if you're not born again, you go through hell on earth and then you go to hell. If you are born again and you serve Jesus and you look for his return and you look for his glorious appearing, he blows that trumpet. You can't help but obey him because you've obeyed every other voice. Now, one, where the place where the Feast of Trumpets comes from is Exodus chapter 19 when they appear at Mount Sinai and the Lord tells Moses, when a trumpet blows, you tell them to come on up and be with me. And so the trumpet blows. He actually says, after three days, I'm going to show up and blow the trumpet. And after three days, the Lord comes down on Mount Sinai in a cloud and a fire and lightnings and thunders and voices and noises. And the mountain is altogether a furnace on fire. And here comes a trumpet. The trumpet says, come on up. Except the people are terrified. The same people who cried out to God from a distance are now at his feet and they're terrified. And I see the same thing in the church today. We've called out to God and served him from a distance for years and decades. And now that he's here and he's in the earth and the earth is altogether on fire and he's calling us up higher, people are terrified. But if you've been obeying God a little bit all along the way, the next command to come up higher is no hard task to obey. But if you've been playing games with God and he blows that trumpet... Why would you obey that? You didn't obey the last five commands. You don't obey the command to forgive. You don't obey the command to tithe. You don't obey the command to witness. You don't obey the command to read your Bible. You don't obey the command to pray. Why would you obey the command to come up? You've been demonstrating with your daily life you're not interested in coming up. Therefore, the trumpet sounds louder and longer, and nobody comes up. 
Exodus 19. Finally, the Lord says, all right, Moses, you and the elders and the priests, you guys come up. We've got to talk. We're going to have to change things. The problem is that was written for our edification that, that we know it's coming. We're living in that time when it's coming. And I'm not here to say my doctrine is changing from pre-trib to mid-trib to post-trib. We just know tribulation's coming and the resurrection of the dead is coming. And the difference is only seven years. So what are we going to fight over? We just serve God. What else are we going to do? We're going to serve God. This resurrection of the dead is a foundational principle. And if you don't believe it, you're teetering. This is our blessed hope because after this, we have eternal life. So the choice is up to us. It's up to you to do with it as you choose because you have a choice. Amen?